In this week's episode, we talk about Big Bird selling vaccines to five-year-olds, Israelis opening up the border to the insufficiently vaccinated, and the election in New Jersey. In a first for the podcast, we are joined by special guest Justine Murray, a producer at One America News Network. I'm Luke. And I'm Rody. And this is the Right Side of the Compass podcast. All right. So this week we have a special guest. Her name is Justine Murray. Uh, Justine, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure thing. Thank you so much for inviting me on. My name is Justine. I am dubbed the anti-PC pageant queen because I compete in the Miss America organization and my platform, Every Woman is Supposed to Have a Platform, which is a social impact initiative they promote. Mine is free speech, particularly free speech on college campuses. So I've been working to promote that throughout the Miss New Jersey organization because I'm from New Jersey. And also, I just graduated Syracuse University, where that was kind of my social impact initiative throughout my entire college career. And it was a pretty interesting experience. I got to work in the White House um, during my senior year um, for Vice President Mike Pence. And then I got to work on Capitol Hill. And now I'm at One American News Network. And it's a wonderful time. Wow, that's really good. Justine, do you mind... uh if I tell the story about how we met. Yeah, for sure. So um, as you may or may not know, I was in a WhatsApp group that shall not be named uh, for Jewish singles. Uh, During the pandemic, (laughs) a lot of us went from meeting people in the meat space to meeting people online. And I remember that uh, Justine was, uh, had a friend of Justine's posted a profile for her on this Facebook group for dating. And so much for the tolerant left. I know that's a big cliche, but uh, the libs started attacking her because she had pictures with Donald Trump in the profile. So as you can imagine, uh, all the conservatives, we got together and we rallied behind Justine. And that's how I met Justine. And that's how I met a lot of people in the pandemic through that. That was uh, one of the big things that brought all these conservative uh, and free minds together during the pandemic. So that was kind of a big moment. So that's how we met. I think I think that's kind of funny, actually, um, because I don't think any couple was actually made out of that Jewish singles chat. There was there were about fourteen thousand people in that chat. Maybe there was one couple made. In fact, there were more arguments and more subgroups created from that because so many people were arguing than there were actually couples made. And yeah, of course, that's so interesting. It, it plays <laughs> it plays to our stereotype. You know, we all love to convince. Like we can't agree on anything. So even when they broke off into the conservative groups, they had like conservative Jewish singles. But that group started fighting with each other. So they had like different conservative Jewish single groups. And then same with the left. Um, and it just, it really plays. Well, this you, is know my... what, you know what they say when you have a hundred Jews in a room, you're going to have 101 opinions. <laughs> actually, actually the, the saying is uh, three Jews, five opinions, but I've even heard, <laughs> I even heard it said as two Jews, three opinions. So the jury's out on that one. Um, but yeah, that's how we met. And um yeah, but I've been following Justine's career ever since. Uh, she has a fascinating – you have a fascinating career. Sorry, I spoke about you in the third person. You're right here. Thank um, you. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but yeah, but I'm glad that we were able to bring you on to the show and uh, you'll be able to bring your expertise uh, to our discussion. Now, without further ado, let's get to topic one, Big Bird shills for Big Pharma. So you know what happened. Uh, I know Justine knows what happened, but Rody, do you know what happened exactly? Um, basically, Big Bird, America's favorite bird, said uh, he posted a Twitter. I didn't know he had a Twitter account personally, but um, he posted on Twitter saying that people should take the vaccine and um, stuff like that. Also well, just on the to, well, show, just to add I believe. To, well, just, yeah, the sh- well, the show came first. And then oh. on Twitter, he, he, he reiterated what he said on the television show. It was actually like a panel of of like three Muppets and two kids. Very, very enlightening panel there. Certainly smarter than any of the clowns on CNN. But uh, I know that's like a cliche, but I love cliches. And uh, so anyways, they had this panel and then, you know, Big, Re- Big Bird reiterated that on his Twitter that, oh, you know, you should take the vaccine. Now, my question is as follows. Who exactly was Big Bird selling the vaccine to? Because if let's say this happened on a teen show, right? Let's say, you know, you know, teen Nick, right? You know, they used to show Drake and Josh. I don't know what they, they put there anymore, but Drake and Josh, great show. Anyways. So if they had like Drake and Josh advertise the vaccine, then at least like, okay, fine. 16, 17 year olds, they can already kind of bug their parents. They can already do that stuff. What five-year-old is going to their parents going, mommy, mommy, I need the vaccine. I don't, I don't well, know what that's for. I think it's more for the parents because usually the kids aren't alone in their room. Usually the parents are there with them kind of seeing uh, what they're watching or maybe they put on the TV for them while they're doing something else in the house. So it's, I think it's for them while you know they're just listening to the TV or maybe it's background noise. And it's just like a whisper saying, get the vaccine. Right. That's, yeah. Well, well, Justine, you were saying? I was just going to add, I, I think it plays up to how creepy this is because they know that children, you know, when a child sees a new toy being advertised on TV or something on TV and the the commercial keeps telling you, you have to get this, get your parents <laughs> to get this for you. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're advertising the vaccine like they would be advertising a toy. And then, of course, you have the kid coming up to the parent and nagging. I mean, this is what I used to do. I used to see a cool toy on uh, Nickelodeon. Nick Jr. And I used to go up to my mom and say, mom, I have to have this. I have to have this. And the kid causes causes a stink about it. And then it's almost as if your five-year-old kid is guilt tripping you into giving them the vaccine. It's putting power, more power in a five-year-old over. It's like they're manipulating your own kids to pressure you into, you know, giving this jab to them or getting the jab yourself. Um, and and I, it, I kind of find that funny because usually kids hate getting shots. So I'm just imagining the situation where a kid goes up to their, their parent. They're like, <laughs> I want to get it. Well, I so. can imagine if, if a parent is, um, if they're, if they're looking at this thing and then the kid comes to them and says, mommy, 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 I need the Fauci ouchie. Right. <laughs> and they go, well, you know what the Fauci ouchie is, right? They go, we take you to the doctor and the doctor is not a nice person. He takes this giant needle, sticks it in your arm, right? I don't think the kid's going to want the vaccine anymore. So, but it begs an even more important question. If, if let's say, like you said, Rody, that the vac, that they're really advertising the vaccine to the parents, why do they think that you're going to change your mind on the vaccine because of what's on Sesame Street? Uh, I don't know, actually. Um, that's a good point. 
because I mean, I guess it's one of those things where if you hear it everywhere, you can't help, even if you're kind of against it, you can't help but think about it. So that's kind of the point, or maybe they're hoping to change someone's mind. But like, like Justine said, you know, I, I guess maybe it is in the end for the kid to go to their parents and, you know, nag them for it. But I mean, these kids are very young, so I don't really know, you know, if they kind of really understand what's happening. Well, if you look at it, if you look at it like that, then let's say we take Justine's approach, right? Where they're, they want, you know, the little boy or the little girl to nag mommy and daddy for the vaccine, right? The problem with it is that kids are not smart. And you to advertise to children, you need, you know, a big announcement. You need this like big announcement guy to come and say, oh, you need this toy. You need a catchy theme song and you need like lots of images. There's no images. You can't, what are you going to show a kid? Like, ooh, there's a giant needle. We're going to show you this thing or, or a vial of like this kind of liquid that looks very sterile, very unappealing. So it, it doesn't seem like it would appeal to five-year-olds. I would say that that's what makes it so cringy what these commercial why these commercials are so cringy when they're talking to the puppets because you know people know kids a lot of kids probably won't fall for that but i think that this is a desperate attempt from you know the corporate leftists and you know they're basically puppets of the biden administration um to you know to get more it's just another attempt but might not be successful because if you look at the Twitter page of Big Bird and Elmo, they're getting pretty clo- closely to closely ratioed. I mean, there's a lot of people who are are making fun of this. So it seems like this was maybe just not. You're right, not a well thought out attempt. Um, but I would also add that the symbol, the symbolism is very fitting because these are literal puppets actual puppets and figuratively it's like they are puppets of the biden administration and you know they're the corporate woke um that are trying to you know force decisions on parents so i'd say that's pretty interesting well speaking of the biden administration in case you're wondering whether whether big bird would be the stupidest person to be on twitter this week the Biden administration would not be outdone by Big Bird. So in response to Big Bird's tweet, President Biden at the official POTUS Twitter account uh, retweet. Uh, well, he tweeted this. I don't know Twitter lingo because I'm not on Twitter because I have a life. Good on you, Big Bird. Getting vaccinated is the best way to keep your whole neighborhood safe. So you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of those people who watch Marvel movies. And then they would go, I don't know, say meet Robert Downey Jr. or Chris Evans. And if let's say they met them, right, they wouldn't refer to them by their actual names. They would would refer to them by their characters. So let's say a guy walks down the street, he meets Chris Evans. Instead of saying like, oh, man, it's Chris Evans. Can I get a uh, an autograph? They would say something like, oh, my God, it's Captain America, right? But he's not Captain America. That he, He's playing the role of Captain America. But he's not Captain America, right? So – President Biden responding to Big Bird like this, it's kind of, it's almost condescending. It's like, we know he's not Big Bird, but I'm going to pretend he's Big Bird because Big Bird has a cell phone and he's actually responding. He's the one making all these uh, points about the vaccine. So, you know, it, it feels kind of childish, you know? Right. Yeah, I'd say that. But I think it's it's part of the act. Um, they're They're making it 
by using, you know, Big Bird, the name Big Bird, they're making it very cute. Um, they're making the whole vaccine push very cutesy as if, as if to make it more appealing to people. Right. Which, and you touched on this, you literally just touched on it. It, it feels like an act. Nothing about the Biden administration feels real, right? His election didn't feel real, right? Because, you know, ignoring the actual tallying of the votes just for a second, right? When Trump would have a rally, there would be lots of people who would come to the rallies, like throngs of people. They want to see the president, right? Biden couldn't even get, you know, a bunch of interns to come to his rallies. He rallied from his basement. And then when he wanted to get the booster, they set up a fake, uh, they set up a fake Oval Office for him to get the vaccine in. And I don't know why, because he has a real Oval Office they could do it in, but they set up a fake one. So everything that the Biden administration does really feels fake. And uh, that that's what I see. This is another fake thing. Like you said, I don't think President Biden is such an idiot that he thinks Big Bird's actually a real bird, right? But he's, he's play acting because it's all a game of pretend to these people. It's a pretend presidency for a pretend government. And uh, which leads me into my next point, which is that this is what the administration and the establishment more broadly, this is what they think of you. This is what they think of me. This is what they think of our parents. This is what they think of everyone. They think we're such idiots that if they say, oh, Big Bird told you to get the vaccine, now we're going to get the vaccine, right? Like there, there's a leap of logic. I, I actually posted this on my personal Facebook page. I said, you know, I wasn't going to get the vaccine, but now that Big Bird told me to get it, I'm, I made an appointment. <laughs> and it's kind of like, well, did they really think that that's what was going to happen? Did they really think that people were going to be undecided or worse, be anti the COVID vaccine and then well, decide? I think it's not for the it's not for the people that are like against it. It was either for the people in the middle or who just like, you know, weren't sure or just weren't thinking about it. Because there are plenty of people who were, you know, it's just not on their mind. Or like you said, they they actually have a life and they're just very busy. So they're not really, you know, paying attention so much. But Rody, the vaccine came out almost a year ago. We've had, we've had, and it's not like no one knew about the vaccine. It's been out for almost a year. They've been advertising it up the wazoo. Anyone who's wanted to get the vaccine has been able to get the vaccine at this point. It's not been a month. It's not been two months. It's been almost a year. Anyone who's decided not to get the vaccine at this point either has decided they're never going to get it or hasn't been sufficiently bullied into getting it, Right. So why are they doing this? I, I don't understand. Like, it, it, I understand why they would put critical race applied principles into kids shows. That I understand because that's more subliminal, subliminal messaging, right? The kid is not going to ask mommy and daddy to buy them systematic racism. But if you tell the kids long enough that, oh, you know, there's transgender and there are more than two genders and your friend who's a boy may not really be a boy, that's, that's subconscious, right? That, that more educates them for later. But I'm just trying to figure out you're selling these kids a product you can't it's not marketable to children because it's a it's a medical procedure and they're ultimately it's ultimately up to the parents because the parents have to consent to this medical treatment like even even the schools that want to vaccinate the kids have to get consent from the parents to give them this treatment so i'm really curious as to why they thought this would be a good idea and why this wouldn't blow up in their faces i think it comes down to you know information and entertainment going together where you know they're putting you know information and all this entertainment to get certain ideal ideas across so i would 
add that, you know, fear, fear is marketable. So our kids, you know, our kids going to be appealed, are shots going to be appealing for kids? Probably not in a normal time. But we've been through one and a half years, nearly two years now of, you know, fear being pushed on the people. If, you know, if you dare, you know, step to, uh, closer than six feet from someone, you're going to kill their grandma. Um, and, and it's been pushed on us for so long that we might be in a new kind of in a new culture where fear is dominating our society to the point where, you know, where a couple of years back, no one would, no kid would want to go get a shot. But now, um, you know, fear is, is this, is this main, main thing in our lives? And they might, they might think, well, if I don't get the shot, mommy and daddy, um, something could happen to me. They're saying that, you know, grandma could die. You could die if we don't get the shot. Um, and, and that's what makes this whole thing so sickening. Um, and I just wanted to add one other thing because I, I think you, you made a really interesting point that why are they acting like parents have a choice um, or why are they understanding, seemingly understanding that parents have a choice whether or not to vaccinate their children when the Department of Justice has been targeting parents labeling them domestic terrorists for opposing critical race theory. So they're going after parents for that. They they're forcing critical race theory on children and they're that's not a choice. But then all of a sudden they turn around and say, "Oh, parents have a choice to vaccinate their children. Um we just really hope you you do vaccinate your kids." So it it is really weird in that that situation. It is. Um, but it is very interesting that you mentioned critical race theory because to be a little more precise, the schools are not teaching critical race theory. And this goes into the election in New Jersey, the election in Virginia. They're teaching more critical race applied principles, right? Critical race theory is what they teach in Harvard Law School. That's this very dry academic theory about how the legal system doesn't really work for you know certain population groups in the, in the United States. But what they will do is they will teach your kids the, the results of critical race theory, what the outcome is, how to think in that way, right? So uh, the Tim Cast IRL podcast, they coined the phrase critical race applied principles, and that stands for crap. Number one, because it's, it's a little more accurate, because when it comes to these things, it's very important we get good definitions because they will always try to be very sneaky. If you say critical race theory, they'll say things along the lines of, we're not teaching critical race theory. That's what they teach in Harvard Law School, right? But they're not teaching crit critical race theory. They're teaching critical race applied principles, praxis. But also, more importantly, the acronym is CRAP. So, <laughs> so I like to say CRAP. And with that in mind, I'd like to transition to the election in New Jersey. Now, Rody and I actually discussed in a different episode of the podcast, we discussed the Virginia outcome, what happened in Virginia. We we spoke about how the everything leading up to the election and how it really was a referendum on critical race theory, well, critical race applied principles, and specifically what Terry McAuliffe was saying about parents, that they have no right to educate their own kids. They have no say in what their kids are learning. But when it comes to New Jersey, New Jersey is a bit interesting. New Jersey is a blue state. But even then, Phil Murphy really just eked out this very, very small victory. And you have to remember, how many people left New Jersey for greener pastures during the during the pandemic when they saw, oh, you know, in New Jersey, I can't go outside. I can't see my family. I can't go to work. I can't do this. I can't do that. 
they're taxing me up the wazoo. And there are states where they didn't lock down, they don't force you to wear masks, and they don't tax you, not nearly as much anyways. So it's interesting that even in blue New Jersey, which presumably lost a lot of Republicans and other free-thinking people, the election was so close. What do you think about just that, Justine? I, I think it's because enough people are angry. First, we have we do have a pattern in New Jersey where you have a Democrat governor and they only get one term. And then in four years, people are mad enough at the Democrat governor and they elect a Republican. Um, and that's been going on for quite a while. So it it is a little more expected that Jack Chitterelli, who was the gubernatorial candidate for the Republicans, that he would have a, a better chance at, you know, defeating a Democrat. Um, and and at the same time, you know, Phil Murphy, although he he isn't bad as Terry McAuliffe, it, enough people are angry at him and at the Democrats for taxing us up the wazoo, for implementing um, critical race, as you said, applied principles in our public schools um, for this lockdown. Um, and Jack Chitterelli, you know, he's not a he's not a career politician. Phil Murphy, he's an, he isn't really from New Jersey. He's actually a, a rich guy uh, from outside of New Jersey who came in. Jack Chitterelli, oh. yeah, Jack Chitterelli was uh, raised in in Somerville. Um, he he has the Jersey spirit. He he's like in, uh, encompasses New Jersey. He's just. Very, very stereotypically Jersey guy, and I think that's why so many people were drawn to him. And and I'm, I'm I know him. He's an amazing person. He's, did you work on the campaign? Um, I did not work on the campaign, but um, I've met him a couple of times at certain events, and um, we were both. I was a singer at a local Republican event. He was the uh, guest speaker. Um, so he's. Very wonderful guy. He would have done wonderful things for the state. He really wanted to um, improve education when it comes to promoting trade schools and this idea, really quenching this idea um, or dissuading people from this idea that you know college is the end all be all. You have to go to college. Um, so that's why, you know, one of the many reasons that I really liked Jack Chitterelli. And I, to be honest, um, you know, I. I think that there were some shady incidents, including in Bergen County, where it Bergen County was reported. Bergen um, County represent. Yeah. Rody and I, Rody and I were from Bergen County. Uh, if you live in Bergen County, it really does feel. I know a lot of New Yorkers are gonna kind of roll their eyes and say that uh, we're not actually New Yorkers, but. If you're from Bergen County, many people in Bergen County are less New Jersey and they're more New York City. No, you um, say it because I, it bothers them. <laughs> well, it, it, you, you do say it because it bothers them, but it's also kind of true. Like, I don't feel like I grew up in Jersey. I feel like I grew up in the suburbs of New York City. And you especially feel it once you're old enough and you travel to the city on your own and you realize that so many of the people you know have moved to New York City or work in New York City and your parents know people who work in New York City and everyone commutes every day. Whereas I feel like people who live in central South Jersey, they're much more Jersey, right? You go uh, – I remember uh, a friend of mine and, and, I, and, and I, we would go to a flea market down into the state. I think it was central or South Jersey. It was probably closer to central Jersey because it wasn't like five hours away. And uh, there you could really see New Jersey. 
And uh, that it was like it's like a whole nother world there. People who live in Bergen County just don't get that. They really don't get that. But yeah, in Bergen County, there was uh, shady dealings. I and and act, that's actually the article I brought up. Um, yeah. I they there's in NorthJersey.com. The the article says why election night in Bergen County seemed like quote unquote fraud to many. A look behind the scenes. Basically, they said that. It seemed after 100% of the votes came in and Jack Cittarelli was 51 or 52%, he had 52% of the votes, all of a sudden in the middle of the night, 40,000 votes came in pretty much all right. for Governor Murphy. Um, but I'm actually much more inclined to kind of chalk it up to the, I guess, the mail-in voting. Number one, because while there were many people who were enthusiastic about Mr. Cittarelli, New Jersey's simply a blue state. That's just the reality. It's much more confusing to me when you have throngs of people like toppling each other to get to a Donald Trump rally and then Biden can't attract a crowd versus Phil Murphy, who, you know, for all intents and purposes, he's running in a blue state. He should win, you know? Um, so there's that. The The thing is, is that although New Jersey is a blue state with the gubernatorial elections, there is that pattern where, you know, you elect a Democrat for four years and then you get sick of him and then you elect a Republican. But I could understand, you know, maybe it just wasn't enough this year. Again, not as many people seem to be as angry at Phil Murphy as they were as the governor of Virginia and um, at Terry McAuliffe for pushing critical race theory, that's where more eyes were in Virginia. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, I, I wish there was more coverage of New Jersey um, for two reasons. First, so people could understand why we need a new governor just as much as we do in Virginia. And second, um, it it seemed almost uh, in, not impossible, but a lot harder to have some have voter fraud um, in in a state like Virginia, where it was being covered so much and so closely that, you know, any weird, sketchy ballots in the middle of the night, you know, it's going to be harder to pull that off. And in New Jersey, you, you didn't get a lot of coverage. Um, but I'd also like to add, you know, and of course, the Democrats um, and the liberal, they, they call this a, a conspiracy theory. And, oh, you're crazy if you dare to raise, you know, a question, even if you don't say, oh, the election was stolen, even just saying, you know, there could be some instances of voter fraud and we have to check that out. Um, they call that a conspiracy theory. But then Steve Sweeney, um, who was the the Senate president and I'm so glad um, you brought that up. I'm so glad you brought that up. My, my favorite story. It warms my heart. It, yeah, it <laughs> warms my heart. Mine you go to sleep too. at night. It, I know. It, it really. That's why I think, and I think that story is why not as many people are upset at what's happening in the New Jersey election because. No, you 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 are seeing the pendulum start to swing with this this Edward Durr guy who he was a trucker and he had no experience in politics. He creamed Sweeney, and it, it's like the David and Goliath story. Um, but it, it was so funny because Sweeney he said that he suddenly found or suggested he suddenly found twelve thousand ballots, and that's why he didn't concede right away. Oh, but that's not a conspiracy theory. Sweeney wasn't uh, doing anything wacky <laughs> yeah well um first of all i just gotta say the thing about edward durr's story that really really made it one of my favorite stories of the year so far 
is that it makes me realize that a political career in New Jersey is not nearly as expensive as I initially thought it was as a kid. I thought I would need like hundreds of thousands of dollars to run in New Jersey. Now I realize I can take my bar mitzvah money. I could take it. I can, you know, invest in some flyers, maybe hand out some Tootsie Pops and then be the governor of New Jersey. Why not? If, if, it, if, if that's what it costs, you know, it, it, maybe it's worth it. And then I can get in some of that, uh, you know, New Jersey corruption. I could get in on some of that, you know, make some money. Um, no, just kidding. Obviously not. Um, uh, <laughs> don't, Sounds don't, like I mean, a- <laughs> it is ridiculous how like anyone can run. I mean, wasn't it a few years ago where there was a, there was a person who put down the name uh, D's Nuts as like, you know, for president? No? Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember exactly, but that sounds just about right. I think Mickey Mouse gets a certain percentage of the vote every year in the United States. Or it was Elmo or, or something like that. Something like that. But, you know, because you can write in your own candidate, unlike in Israel where you have to run it, run as a party, because in America you run as the individual, you can write in your own candidate, which makes it possible for Mickey Mouse to get a sizable percentage of the vote for a cartoon character who doesn't exist in real life. But, you know, that's besides the point. Um, I think I think we also need to recognize that for what it's worth, Phil Murphy was very smart. He shut his mouth. He didn't say anything. As Justine probably knows this, but I don't know if you know this, Rody, Project Veritas at the last minute kind of came in with some leaks from the Murphy administration about what would happen if they would win the election. They would start, you know, clamping down on the COVID rules, vaccine mandates, masks in schools, yada, yada, yada. But unlike Terry McAuliffe, who kind of leaned into it, Phil Murphy was very smart. He didn't say anything. And that kind of shows you how unpopular it is. Imagine if Phil Murphy was stupid enough to say, oh, I'm going to put mask mandates if I win. I'm going to do more mask mandates. I'm going to do more vaccine mandates. Imagine if he would have said that. Do you think he would have won? I, I have a lurking suspicion that perhaps he wouldn't have won if he would have leaned more into the critical race uh, applied principles and you know the mask mandates and the COVID regulations and all that. Right. Yeah. Um yeah, I, w- I would say that. I would say that, you know, Phil Murphy, he was really good at keeping his mouth shut. You know, from people from New Jersey, we were usually not very good at that. <laughs> but um, Murphy was. And I almost wish he did say the quiet part as- out loud during his campaign. Um, because wh- when Terry McAuliffe started to be so open, when, especially when he said um, parents – Oh, the parents shouldn't have a say in their children's education. I mean, he really, I, I couldn't help but laugh a little because I, I knew as hard, you know, as horrible as that is, I, I knew I had a gut feeling that it was going to wake, wake up enough Virginia voters to turn that election around, um, to, you know, to get Glenn Youngkin in there. I knew that that, that just crossed line. I had faith in the American spirit that we still take, at least in Virginia, we still take liberty seriously. And, you know, I, I'm glad to have been right on that. Um, and I hope that in New Jersey, that if Governor Murphy um, pulled something like that or said what Terry McAuliffe did, that enough New Jersey parents would feel the same. Right. So in my opinion, there are really two lessons to come from the the election in 2021. The first lesson, and this is Michael Knowles has uh, touched on this, and and uh, I want to repeat it because it's a very very good point. The just 
to get a background, the RNC, I believe it was the RNC of the national GOP that when they saw the election after Virginia, they tweeted out and they said, um, or was it, um, what's his name? McCarthy, the guy from California. Uh, he said, this is a sign that socialism will never win in America, which is such a tired GOP talking point. Not that socialism's any good, mind you. My Both sides of my family escaped from the Soviet Union. So I have nothing but contempt for communism. But uh, it's more just get with the times, man. We're not fighting the Soviets anymore. This is much more neo-lib than it is uh, strictly communism of the proletariat, you know, redistribution of the resources. I mean, there's there's some of that, but it's much more accurate to say that this is uh, critical race applied principles, neoliberalism, etc. Um, and they they really need to stop with the kind of economic conservatism of, I don't know, say a Mitt Romney or a... Who's that other guy? Adam Kinzinger. All these, all these very, very economically focused Republicans who, who, who really just want to lower the, who raise the GDP, lower the national debt. People like that. I think if you lean into the culture issues, if you really, if you really do that, if you say, hey, education's important to us. Hey, jobs are important. Hey, uh, what we're doing, what we're giving to China, um, what our families look like. If you really address those issues, people respond to that because I don't think a regular person really cares about the GDP. They they care much more that their kids are being taught normal, correct things in school and that their kids aren't being you know perverted on television by Sesame Street or whatever it is. And I think the second thing is, is that we see what happens when a Republican really makes the guy answer for critical race applied principles. Where I think Mr. Chitterelli did fail in the sense that he didn't press hard enough on Jack Murphy. Because imagine if Mr. Chitterelli had really gone after the social issues. Imagine if Mr. Chitterelli really did make Phil Murphy kind of address critical race applied principles. Do you think that he would have done better? Because I think he would have. And uh, I think that that's a lesson to Republicans or to anyone trying to challenge the system. You really need to make them eat it. You really need to make them own it. And if you do that, you're going to get the results you want. If you don't own it, not enough people are going to switch their affiliation. Not enough people are going to vote the way you want. I I think that's a good point. Um, When you talk about, you know, a lot of a lot of Republicans, a lot of establishment Republicans, um, Mitt Romney especially, they, they focus on you know the economy, which is very important. But when when we have such a, a cultural war right now, where they are indoctrinating your children in schools, where they're you know they're pushing, they're they're using state power to push the vaccine on you, or um, monopolies. Um, so big tech monopolies are censoring your speech. Eventually, right. that yep. Yeah, eventually, that is going to cause an economic issue, and we're seeing it. By the way, you know when you have businesses firing their employees um, for not getting vaccinated, um, when you have airlines not working anymore, when you have um, oh now now we have policing issues because we're firing police officers for not being vaccinated. Um, You can go down the whole list. So that's affecting our economy as well. Everything affects the other. Um, And I don't think that's what our older, more establishment politicians understand. Um, You know, the cultural issue, culture issues is often brushed aside as you know, oh, just some petty drama. Let's just ignore it. Um, Okay, so what? Some people on Twitter or some social justice warriors are advocating to, you know, ban genders or force gender pronouns on people saying that gender is a construct. Um, And 
you know, we've taken, we've turned a blind eye, blind eye to that. And now we're having a problem where, well, that's, you know, it's not just a couple of people on Twitter anymore. And if it was, you know, free speech for everyone, but the, the problem is, is that universities now and institutions are enforcing those opinions, those cultural opinions on people by banning them, by getting them fired, by canceling them for not adhering to their warped cultural warped culture. Um, So just an example, Columbia University, they just came out with this video about using people's preferred pronouns, um, basically stating, stating, you know, if you, if you quote, misgender someone and you're a faculty member, you could face termination, you could get fired for this. Now that's censorship. And, and that's discrimination. And by the way, Columbia University, along with most universities, public or private, receive millions and millions of dollars in federal funding. So this is technically government-sanctioned censorship. Um, this is a, a government-sanctioned culture issues in many circumstances. So that's why you can't just worry about the economy um, and, and you know, oh, we'll, we'll just leave the cultural issues up to the people who just want to debate on Twitter. Right. And it's very interesting that you said that about Columbia because I always make this point, and this is a point that Michael Knowles makes a lot. And uh, I happen to be a student of Michael Knowles. He's pretty much my rabbi at this point, um, you know, as as you as it is. Um, I know he's not technically Jewish, but he was a lot more – it just – during the – recent kerfuffle that happened in the summer where Israel was at a war and there were a lot of people attacking Jewish institutions. There were a lot of Jewish people that were telling other Jewish people to maybe hide your stars of David, uh, take off the yarmulkes. And I remember it, it was very telling to me that it was the Jewish people telling the other Jewish people not to be Jewish. And it was the Catholic guy from New York telling the Jews to keep their yarmulkes on. So I feel like that's okay for him to be my rabbi. But on a more – he always says that there's there's this fake distinction between the public and the private. Like private is in your own home. But if you run a business in a, a commercial area, you are somewhat public because the public is paying for the roads. The public's paying for the police. They're paying for the, 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 the traffic lights. And if you're a big corporation, you're getting lots of handouts from the federal government or your state government to make jobs, this, that. So the idea that there's some neat distinction between public and private is very, very incorrect. And you're very right to point out that if Columbia is getting money from the federal government and then they do censorship on on their own campus, they're essentially – well, the federal government is using institutions like Columbia University to skirt around the constitution, which is a big problem. And a lot of these establishment Republicans don't have the language necessary to address that problem. Yeah. So, Justine, I know uh, you need to go now. So is there a place we can uh, – you could tell our audience where to follow you, where to uh, see your stuff? Yeah. Well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. This was a really fruitful conversation, and I was, I'm was i happy to be part of it. My Twitter is Justine, J-U-S-T-I-N-E underscore B-R-O-O-K-E. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook, same username, J-U-S-T-I-N-E, my middle name, Brooke, and then M-U-R-R-A-Y. And um, oh, I'm also on this new app called, um, and it's a great new app because it promotes free speech, it's called Getter, uh, G-E-T-T-R. So if you happen to have that app, 
And if you don't download it, um, you can follow me there. And it's the same username as my Twitter. All right. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for coming on, Justine. And uh, for our next topic, we are going to talk about Israel opening up its border. So let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about it. All right. So this article from the Jerusalem Post, which I'm informed is a reputable news source, um, and I say that with a question mark, will a fifth COVID-19 wave enter Israel with the two-shot tourists analysis? The Health and Tourism Ministries announced a new policy that will allow entry to small tour groups, even if the travelers do not qualify as fully vaccinated. Okay, so, Rodi, I don't know how much you know about current Israeli green pass, COVID policy, whatever you want to call it. Well, I've definitely heard of it. Um, and I definitely know they check, you know, green pass. I don't know if they still implemented it so much since I was there, but I definitely heard of them implementing a green pass if you got the vaccine or not. Well, they definitely did that, but, and we'll get to that in a minute, but just let's, let's talk about the, the main story first, and then we can get into the nitty gritties. So, The main story here is that currently Israel requires three shots to be considered fully vaccinated. You need to get the two initial shots of Pfizer or Moderna. I think it's Pfizer. Most people have Pfizer in Israel. You need to get the two Pfizer shots, and then you need to get the Pfizer booster shot. So you need to be triple vaxxed to be considered fully vaccinated in Israel, which means that in order to go to a bar, in order to go to synagogue, in order to go to any kind of certain things, you need to be fully vaccinated. And fully vaccinated means three shots. However, it seems that the Israeli government is allowing tour groups into the country as long as they had two shots. Now, there are going to be different rules for these not fully vaccinated people versus the fully vaccinated people. So if you have the vaccine, you're going to be allowed to do certain things. And if you only have the initial two shots, you're going you're to be barred from doing certain things. Now, that's the story. Now we need to get into the analysis. So before we get into the full analysis of what this is, you have to understand that Israel is not... It seems like a Western country in many respects, but Israel is in many ways an Arab country in other respects. And part of that is, is that everything's kind of unofficial. Everything's very much a who do you know situation. That's that's very much a characteristic of the Arab world. And Israel is very much cut from that same cloth. Like not organized, basically. Yeah. The, the First of all, the different... I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, the bureaucracy there is insane, but it is insane. It is insane. (laughs) And before I say what the bureaucracy looks like, it's you might say, well, the bureaucracy looks similar in Western countries. But the idea is that in Israel, the bureaucracy is very disorganized. You may have bureaucracy in one part of the government that says one thing, and you'll have bureaucracy in the other part of the government that says a different thing. And these two parts of the government aren't very good at communicating. But furthermore, you may, there will be rules on the books that will be written you know, written rules, that's officially what you need to do. But unofficially, you can get away without following it. So for example, where I go to synagogue, and I'm not going to talk about it, it says in a big sign in the front, you need your green pass, you need a mask, and you all that stuff. When you actually go to synagogue on Saturday, there's no one checking the green pass. No one cares. And then you'll see during prayers, the, the masks will be on, and they will sit there and be on your butt about it. But the minute, the minute they break out the grape juice, the masks come off. Because it's what they can get away with. It's 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 the thing that most people do. And that's a thing you see a lot of in Israel, where the rules are one thing and what people do in practice is something else. And I don't know how characteristic of that, 
that is of, let's say, other countries. I know that in the United States, many times politicians will say things, but in practice, nothing happens. But I think it's a little different in Israel because Israel, is, that's very much kind of how Israel works. The rules are one thing, but if you know a guy, the rules don't really apply to you. There's a word for a protexia, no? Yeah. So, well, that's that's like more if you know someone and you're able to get special treatment officially. When, and that's more like, let's say in Israel, you may not be able to officially get a gun, but you know the guy who works in the police office who can sign off on you getting a gun. So that's a protexia, right? So how is this? How is this different? Well, this is more just the general attitude of everyone's just trying to cover their butts, but they're not interested in following the rules. It's very much you see it in the army, you see it outside the army, you see it in bureaucracy. No one really cares about the rules themselves. They just want to seem like they are following the rules so that they can say they followed the rules so they don't get in trouble. You'll see that a lot. You you may see people who care about the rules and you see that everywhere, but you'll see also a lot of people who who recognize the rules. They're not actively flouting the rules. They just they're lackadaisical about the rules. They don't care. I feel like you see that here too. With you see a lot of government officials say to wear the masks, and then they don't wear the masks. Well, so. in well, but in America, that's more just a product of the establishment saying one thing and then not really meaning it. So, if let's say you have a government official who is not wearing a mask, who's caught not wearing a mask before they walk onto stage, and then they put on the mask, they walk onto the stage, and then they take off the mask so they could talk into the microphone. That's more of a situation where they hate you and they make rules for you, but not f- they make rules for 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 me, but not for thee. Or how does it go? Rules for thee, but not for me, right? Which which is to say that they make rules so that you follow them, but they don't have to follow them. But in Israel, it's a little different. They will help you break the rules if they can help you break the rules, right? So they'll they'll do whatever they can. Because if, let's say, you go to a bureaucrat's office and they know they can't get in trouble for, for breaking the rules, they'll help you break the rules. They don't care. So that's not, you know. Israel, it's, it's, it's a lot of who you know and who you, like, who, who's dealing with you that day. You get a really big stickler for the rules or you could get some guy who's just there to make money and he signs off on oh, your yeah. form. And exactly. You, yeah, 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 you could do that. <laughs> so you'll see that a lot. But this is a little different. And this, is, this really is Israel – this is really a demonstration of miscommunication, at least this policy is, of the different sectors of the government really not communicating very well, I think. And the reason I say that is, is that Israel's COVID rules are not really consistent. Say what you want about Australia. Say what you want about certain very, very draconian countries when it comes to these rules. But at least you can make the argument that they take COVID very seriously. Like if they're keeping people in their houses, right, then presumably they can't spread coronavirus, which just on a surface level makes sense. I don't think it works in practice because we're not bears and we we need to do things and we can't just hibernate for six months and kill a disease you know so so that's one thing but then you you're basically saying that like australia puts money where its mouth is while israel bark is louder than its bite kind of thing exactly so they'll do things that show they care about coronavirus but then they'll do other things that show that even in the government there are people who who really see things a different way um and this is really indicative of that because if let's say you genuinely believed that without three shots you're in danger of giving Israel coronavirus, right? Why would you want to mess that up, right? By allowing people with just two shots to come into the country if you genuinely believe you need that third shot. But enough people in the Israeli government don't actually believe that or 
they think that tourism is more important than COVID restrictions, right? Because Israel is a tour- has a booming tourism industry, right? Because some of the most ancient things in the world, people of three different religions want to come to see it. I mean, it's also their, one of their main sources of income. Right. In a very small country and everything is ancient. There are people coming from all over the world to see all the ancient things. You, you, you turn a corner and some rock, you know, has some story <laughs> behind it, right? That's, that's just the reality of living in Israel. Uh, no, it really is. You laugh, but the reality is we're a very, very ancient country in that regard. Everything in our country is ancient. Everything uh, is some sort of Yeah, they even have relic. laws for construction. Like, you know, you can't, before you do construction, they have to, like, you know, dig there to see if there are some ancient artifacts. If they find something, you can't build there. And then if there isn't, then it's like, you know, go ahead. Well, that's why Jerusalem doesn't have a subway system. It has a light rail system because if, if let's say they had to build a subway system, they'd have to tunnel under Jerusalem and destroy many priceless artifacts. But building a light rail system where everything's above ground, that's not going to happen. So it, that's really indicative of everything in Israel. And so there are obviously people who are looking at the current situation in Israel and they're saying – hey, listen, the, the tourism industry has been shut down for almost two years at this point. Because remember, the, the the tourism problem didn't really start in March when all the COVID restrictions happened. It started when people started getting jumpy about COVID. That's people travel a lot less. And so you see that there are people who are going, you know, our economy is is, is fundamentally built on tourism. So we need to get tourists back, right? And even last summer when the COVID restrictions really were relaxed a lot, there were a lot of people who were not interested in coming to Israel because between the war and between COVID and between the spike in COVID and this and that, people were just not down to travel. And so there are people now who are coming into Israel with only two vaccines. And so now there's a contradiction, right? Because Israeli citizens, they need three three shots to go to bars, to go to school, to go to synagogue, to do this, to do that. Right. But on the other hand, they're allowing these tourists to come with only two vaccines and they think just restricting these tour groups to each other and just having them travel as a unit without interaction with the society is going to help them. But the reality is that's not how viruses work. Viruses are much more finicky. And if you bring a virus into a country, that's it. It's fair game. The virus is going to come and infect everybody. So I really have to wonder, does Israel really take COVID vaccines? COVID seriously, or are they doing this as some sort of charade, as some sort of, uh, I, I guess, play act? They want to placate certain people. I, I'm just, I'm genuinely know. curious. It's, it's real. It's really hard to say <laughs> what the, you know, what they're thinking. You can never really tell what uh, the Israeli government's thinking. <laughs> so, well, it's hard because the Israeli government, the Israeli government is really not one person. It's not led by a single individual. There's many, many competing interests. And you have to ask yourself, you know, because um, Naftali Bennett, I remember this summer, last summer, he made a big stink and he said, you know, we're going to force people to take the vaccine. Everyone has the right to free speech, but until you're taking other people's lives and we're going to get you to take the vaccine, we're going to get your friends to tell you to take the vaccine. We're going to get everyone to tell you to take the vaccine and we're going to punish you until you do it, right? He was, he was, he sounded pretty draconian, right? But then you see things like this and you have to ask yourself, do I really take that guy seriously? Do I really, do I really care what he thinks? He's, he has no control. 
because this is not a policy made by a guy who wants to stop COVID. This is a policy made by a guy who has to placate certain interests and has competing interests competing for his time and attention. So is he trying to is he trying to like kind of release some of the tension? Is he trying to make people forget that there's like these COVID regulations? What is he trying to do with this uh, with this with this policy? I just I, I don't know. I think he's trying to like you said, like there's only so much you can there's only so much you can, you know, cater to one side. I guess they were so strict about COVID for so long people are sick and tired and especially the the new immigrants who want to see their their family that want to come over and you have to go through so much paperwork just to get into the country they want to i guess now cater to the other half on you know on the other side because you know things are starting to ramp up again life is somewhat starting to go back to normal even though it's never going to be normal but they know they know that the virus isn't going away, so they need a way to somehow work with it. But like you said, it, it con- kind of contradicts. But, you know, they can't really control. Look, they know they want to prevent, um, you know, an outbreak, but w- they can control their citizens because, you know, they live there. But they're not able to control people from other countries because, you know, different countries do different things. So it's one of those things where it's, you you can't get rid of the problem, but you can somehow. Uh, I don't know how the saying goes, but you know you can't fix the problem, but you can some if if something bad is happening and you can't get rid of the bad thing, but you can somewhat like minimize it in some way. Do you understand what I'm saying? I understand what you're saying, um, but just to bring up the COVID stats here, it seems that between August and really you know October November. There was this big, big spike in cases. And now, just this is the newest one, November 13th, new cases. The seven-day average is 468. And that's like a little less than 500 people a day getting COVID. Um, I don't this – this is – it's like, it's like they see – it really is based on whether there's a spike in COVID or whether there's not a spike in COVID. That's why you're seeing a lot of these policies now because – they're loosening already the green pass restrictions. They're going to start opening up uh, more things to more people. But also, as you see, like they're doing this plan, this this policy, because I think there there's not a lot of COVID, and they're hoping, okay, while COVID is in this kind of decline, let's get some tourism in because last summer yeah, we couldn't get. That to- makes sense. It does make sense, but then but then you have to ask yourself, why would you bring in tourists when the COVID cases are down? When, according to them, it's the traveling and the bringing diseases from one place to another that brings the COVID, right? Now, if the Israeli government never cared about COVID, if they if they were always of the mind that they're a tourism economy and they need people coming in and they'll deal with COVID as it comes in, they're not going to really prevent it, right? Then I would say, okay, this makes sense, right? But then they wouldn't have shut down in the first place and they wouldn't have done any of this, right? So I don't know. Mm-hmm. So you're saying it's, it's a little sus that they kind of... Like, did do you think they were just doing it to like show the world, hey, we're serious about this thing, or think it was a publicity stunt? I don't know. That that's the thing. In Israel, there's a bunch of different things that that come with COVID policy. I think a lot of the COVID policy was actually mandated because of uh, national security, because in America, people don't understand this about Israel, especially if you've never been here. 
in America, the 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 army has its own method of transportation. They they do they don't use a lot of the civilian transportation. They sometimes use commercial flights, uh, but for the most part, soldiers are transported through military uh, transportation. In Israel, there's this there's this agreement between the Israeli government and the public transportation where Israeli army travels for free, right? So when an Israeli soldier is coming home from the border, he'll take buses to go home. And so that means that if there's a pandemic going on in the private sector and by the by the citizens, you're going to see the soldiers also getting that same disease because there's no degree of separation between the citizens and the soldiers. On a regular basis, you know, when when things are normal, that's great because culturally it keeps the army and the citizens together. And that kind of creates this culture where everyone knows the army, everyone's familiar with it, everyone understands how it works, and everyone kind of knows a soldier, everyone knows who goes to war, everyone everyone knows someone who died in war, which is very sobering as, as a reality. But when you're, when you're dealing with a pandemic, it's a nightmare because imagine your soldier gets a, a disease, right, and he comes back to base, and now he's given the whole disease to the base, and now the base is out of commission because they got COVID, right? Now- it is true that young people are less susceptible to COVID, but young people still do get it. And even if they survive it, it's not exactly a pleasant thing to get. Just like any other disease is not exactly pleasant, right? So even if, if you have like a company of 40 people and 10 people get COVID, it's very hard for that company to operate because you're already dealing with very small numbers of people. And now they are, I guess, they're understaffed, which is a real problem because they don't have the manpower to deal with being that understaffed. So I guess this this was always my theory that a lot of the reason why Israel was so gung ho to shut down is because they wanted to make sure that their soldiers weren't getting caught with the with this blue flu and then being out of commission and then you know their security shot to hell, right? So, but on the other hand, they recognize that at a certain point they are a tourism economy. They need to open up the economy. They need to not you know yeah, it comes down to priorities. Like even like you might be right. You could argue, hey, why? If if the numbers are down now, you don't want them to spike up because it doesn't make sense to have tourism come back. But for how long can you keep that? You know, it's the their economy has been affected so much already by the lack of tourism. And, you know, I saw it firsthand. I visited a few months ago and, you know, there were so many stores that were just closed in some tourist areas and it was really sad to see. So their hands are tied where it's at the point where it's like, you know, we got to risk it, even though the numbers are down, we want to have it down, you know, this might be more important. Um, because without an economy, like, you don't really have much. <laughs> but I will make this point, And I think Israel really needs to make a choice. And that choice is between going back, like just fully opening up and not closing down the tourism economy at all, or they have to find some new way to generate revenue in the inside of Israel. And they really do need to make this choice because you can't a tourism everything affects everything, right? If the tourism economy is shut down, you're gonna see you're gonna see a lot of people. They won't even bother planning trips, even if the economy even if the economy is open, even if the even if the planes are in the air, they're not gonna come to Israel because many people are not you know wealthy enough to make these last minute decisions to come to Israel. They need to see that it's open and they want to make sure that the flight's gonna go there. And they want to make sure that they're getting their money's worth. And what you're going to see is you're going to see wealthy people who can make these sudden decisions or decisions within a couple of weeks that are going to be able to come. But if you're from the United States, a plane ticket to Israel can cost $1,000. Most people can't just throw down $1,000 to come to Israel. 
especially if then they also need to find accommodation. They also need to pay for tour guides and this and that and food, obviously. So you have to pay for the tests also now. Yeah, they do. And so it, it becomes a problem of if, if people don't think Israel can reliably stay open, they're not going to come. And so opening up the Israeli economy to tourism is not going to do anything, right? You may get a couple more uh, falafels in people's hands, but the, you're not solving the problem. And I, I know a lot of people in the tourism industry, and they had to switch careers because the tourism industry is essentially dead right now, right? I know a lot of people who train to be tour guides in Israel, and that's a very, very common thing to be. And now they're just, they're just not because there's no money. Who's coming to Israel? No one's coming to Israel. That's just the reality. So Israel is going to have to make that choice. If they want to continue being a tourism economy, then they need to be a tourism. They need to be a tourism economy. And if they're not going to be a tourism economy, they need to start manufacturing. They need to start generating jobs that are not dependent on people flying in. Call me pessimistic. I don't think Israel has the means to be a producer in that regard. I don't think they have enough room for all these factories. I don't think they can be fully self-sufficient. So if I was running Israel, the decision would simply have to be, well, do I want my country to fall apart because of a lack of income? Or do I want my country to continue running and we'll deal with COVID when it happens? I would make the decision to do the latter because that's the only real decision to be made. It's, it's very... It would take real leadership to do that, but ultimately that's the only way forward for Israel at the moment. I mean, it seems like you said, I mean, from what they're doing, it seems like they are doing that, no? No, this is a half-assed solution in my opinion. This is very much this is very much a solution of, oh, we're gonna we're gonna open it up to double vaccinated people, but only if they travel in a tour group, and only if they do this, and only if they do that. And if you wanna come, you need to be triple vaxxed, and you need to have a reason for it, and you need to do blah, 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 blah. It's not true. Really, you, you can't just come. You can't do things halfway. Yeah, you have to go all the way. You have to lean into it. You have to say, even if you're a no good anti-vax Trump voter, blah, 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 you can come to Israel and we won't make you test and we won't make you quarantine. And because there are a lot of people who won't come to Israel, even if they do qualify, because they don't want to be quarantined. They want to be able to get off the plane and do whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks for being with us this week. Make sure to follow and tune in on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Audible, and Google Podcasts for amazing future episodes. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we look forward to seeing you next time. <laughs>